It's Legacy Media Garbage Fire Week. Just like it was Legacy Media Garbage Fire Week last week. Joe Rogan is the target du jour. Will enough people complain that Spotify just shrugs and walks away from the $100 million they paid Rogan? I doubt it. Joe Rogan was the most listened to podcaster before the current controversy. And he will be after in all likelihood, regardless of what Spotify does. But the whole ordeal points to an issue I've been thinking about for a while. We don't really have cultural institutions anymore, or at least not like we used to. We have platforms like Spotify, usually monopolies, but in this case, a duopoly split with Apple Music. And we have dying legacy brands. I'm not going to name names. You know who I'm talking about. I think this is the root of the Rogan controversy more than anything. Spotify is a platform aiming at 100% market share of streaming, at least in their shareholders' ideal world. If you want to be the one ring to rule them all, you won't have a curatorial or editorial POV. You can't. Your goal is to host everything. This week I brought on Josh Citarella. He recently launched Channel. Channel is a collaborative project. It was started with new models and interdependence, kind of a mega mix of art world refugees that were part of the post-internet to podcast pipeline. Their stated intention is to create a digital cultural institution for today. I'm interested to hear about Channel. You know, I, I dove into some of your Twitter spaces yesterday, but I did not have quite enough time to listen to all of them how long were you guys talking for like four hours (laughs) (laughs) we went on for quite a while in the first one yeah um well we we kind of um we wanted to do something like a public roundtable uh and we did release a podcast simultaneously in all three feeds but it's behind the paywall so there was not a ton of transparency for people who were just learning about it for the first time so we probably talked for, I don't know, we did almost like a full Rogan. We did like <laughs> maybe like three hours and then we went back later and did another hour. Um, but it's, I mean, that's, I'm literally, I'm living my nightmare now because I'm, I'm a grown adult living in my mom's house and my job is to professionally explain the blockchain to people. So it's oh, this no. is as bad as things could have turned out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Neat life. Um, I did. I probably like, uh, I don't know, in an hour and a half on the Twitch stream, another hour and 15 the following week. And then we did an hour and a half town hall type open forum in the discord. So uh, I've talked about this a lot uh, in the last few days. So um, maybe now it's a little bit less pressure. And it's just give me your, fun. Yeah, give me your elevator pitch about what channel is, who's involved and why you're pursuing it. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, channel is a token gated RSS feed, a bundle of three podcasts, Josh Citarella, New Models, Interdependence, and it's your uh, your ID card to a private community. So there's a channel Discord. There's also the Do Not Research Discord. There's a New Models, and um, Interdependence is not actually carrying on a, a Discord on their own. But um, yeah, we, we kind of understand this as membership to uh, a, a new form of an institution. Um, yeah, yeah, it's been it's been a long time coming, and we're glad to finally get it out the door. It's and, been a, a very little sleep in the last few days. <laughs> and you guys, you guys funded the new institution by an NFT release, correct? 
We did. And the NFT is pegged to your individual membership to the group. Yeah. So it gives you the private RSS feed. Did everyone buy an NFT to join the feeds? Or did everyone? No, no, not everyone. Okay. Because I, yeah, I was curious, like, if everyone bought a, uh, well, I guess they're kind of like logos made out of stone, like a logo, a logo mega mix. That be exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's each of our three individual logos, iconographies that are combined into uh, a lore stone, which is um, well. My favorite example <laughs> is that it's from D and D, where uh, you, know, you remember sending stones? They would have this thing. It was like you could. Okay, so if you're playing D and D, if your character is like on one side of the continent and the other guy is like you know somewhere else, yeah. um, you can just speak to each other as if you're sitting around the table. If you each have this stone, it's like a walkie-talkie. Uh, and and it looks kind of like this, you know, runic engraved thing that you hold in the palm of your hand, which is, uh, I think, was part of the inspiration for the design, the design by Sam Rolfs. Um, and it's it, it seemed like an appropriate metaphor for this project. So uh, well, I've, I've written about lore before because I, you know, yes, you have. Yes, the, the person who, the person who introduced me to the concept of internet lore as kind of a a foundational element was Grimes actually. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yes. I, I, I didn't before, know that. That's a good right piece before, though. I really enjoy that piece. Right before COVID started, I interviewed Grimes for a CR uh, fashion book while she was pregnant. And she was she was giving me her lowdown on on lore as like the foundational element of of everything that she does, which makes sense with the whole Dungeons and Dragons element. I you know mm, that's mm. that's a bit new to me because I I was not quite that much of a nerd growing up. <laughs> no offense. <laughs> <laughs> but none taken, none taken. Hey, uh, uh, <laughs> but what can I ask what uh what what are you guys gonna do with the funds that you've aggregated from the NFT sales? Because you've been talking about this as a as a digital institution. And I I share I share the sentiment that you guys have. This has been kind of like a quip that I've been mm. making recently, which is that. I don't think we have a lot of digital cultural institutions. What we have right now are like um, platforms like YouTube and Spotify and Instagram. And then we have kind of, I mean, I don't want to shit talk Rhizome, but, but I, my, my, my feeling feeling with Rhizome though, was like, you know, when that was started in the nineties, it was started out of a concern from people working in what was, was then called like new media Uh, that that digital art was not taken seriously digital culture was not taken seriously and that kind of as a as an impetus or something or as a you know organizational mission statement feels kind of redundant in 2022 compared to like I don't know when when was Rhizome founded in like 98 97 yeah I think I think yeah 97 something like that yeah it's definitely it's definitely from like a very early era of the internet when it was when the internet was like not the the dominant paradigm of everyday life but a a niche concern so so it's interesting to me to hear like i guess what you guys think your version of a digital institution will you know accomplish yeah yeah well let me do um let me do one question at a time here so the um uh, the the first one uh (laughs) yeah no no no, it's important because these are all these are also um uh things that i've gotten you know we put together an faq that we probably put up i want to say 36 hours ago so it's it, all of this is very fresh but the amount we were trying to raise was the dream budget that we put together to give us uh 
six months of operating costs at the current capacity that we're, we're doing. So um, we're running a public facing blog, we're doing internal uh, lectures and panel discussions, people screen films, everyone who does anything in the community gets paid. Um, the, the budget that we wanted to accumulate is going to cover our operating costs to continue paying people uh, and fulfilling the content that we've already been producing. So um, yeah, we were, uh, I think, uh, very fortunate. We we played um, uh, we played the the move appropriately in that we made I think the right estimate and and the right number and all of these things. So we're probably going to have a press release that comes out this weekend. Hopefully, if we can all get our our act together, that gives like the next um, uh, roadmap for for what we plan to do. But I mean, I should I should mention that I kind of I I have not discussed very much of this, and I realize that a lot of the things we do in the community is not outward facing uh, and that the blog is really the only component that people are familiar with. But uh, a large portion of my time is trying to crowdfund uh, or, or fundraise on the side, um, you know, uh, in addition to to allowing people to sign up for Patreon. Well, I mean, and that I allows guess, a. I guess like that's the curse of all nonprofits and art institutions is that exactly the actual exactly. operational concern is usually fundraising <laughs> it's a huge yeah yeah and i mean we shouldn't over over exaggerate it too because really what we're talking about is that you know there's a bfa student who's going to pay five dollars a month to be part of this uh you know uh, creative community and what i want to be able to do is that if they contribute to the blog i just want to reimburse them for the cost of their membership like if you pay in with your creative labor you should be able to join the group for free i think that's a very yeah. fair arrangement um, but what that requires is uh, like one, that means that, well, it's like literally not built into the platforms. Like I can't gift you a Patreon subscription for some stupid reason. Uh, I can invite you to the discord, but I, I some things are gated and just uh, that functionality does not yet exist, which is one of the conversations we had over the past few years of like how to um, build a better platform. Um, but also there's just, just, just regular costs of like, you know, some of this content is not scalable in the same sort of clickbaity content mill type of way. Um, and it's just like, uh, it's not possible to support this type of work through the pure mechanisms of, of the market. You know, otherwise you end up doing like, everybody has to do the West Elm Caleb podcast this week. And if you do it next week, you're not on the same pace yeah. of treadmill and you're not like producing content and generating views and whatever. So if you really want autonomy, you want to be able to set narratives. You do have to offset the terrible incentives of like race to the bottom, clickbait, sensationalism. Oh, sure. and whatever, I mean, I, so. like last week, me and Soph discussed, you know, West Elm Caleb and Kanye and, and Julia Fox just for shits and giggles. But it's it's true that like, you know, in some ways. People our age have a memory of a pre-digital cultural and media ecosystem. Mm. And there's a lot of things that are different about it that people tend to forget about. And if you're if you're a Zoomer, you would just have no memory of this different kind of like content ecosystem. Yes. In which <laughs> in which um but you can even tell by just like the character of of the kind of content that people produce. Like uh I don't know, like you know, when you think about fear and loathing in Las Vegas or like Hunter S. Thompson writing about like the Kentucky Derby, like some of these like iconic pieces of of fiction or of nonfiction or of uh you know journalism from the 20th century. People just don't remember that like publications used to give people money to go do stuff. Right. <laughs> right. That's the that's it's the crazy minute. thing. Yeah. Like when you talk about the the kind of like West Elm Calibification of content, 
part of that race to the bottom is also just when you're on this like narrow bandwidth of what people are interested in talking about. And then simultaneously, when there's no budget for people to do anything besides sit in front of their computer, then of course, all that gets covered is kind of the churn of the Twitter trending bar or the churn of the like for you page. Um, and, right, and a lot right. of that is purely a, a, a problem of like funding, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess the, um, this is probably no surprise to you. Cause I think you, you exited the art world, uh, <laughs> before I did. And I think you made <laughs> probably the right choice there, but, yeah. um, you know, there was a period in, uh, uh creative life as, you know, just in, in the U S uh, and maybe more so in Europe still, but, um, institutions used to protect you from the pressures of the market. You wouldn't need to consider like, okay, well, how many books am I going to sell? How many paintings am I going to sell? You would have like a trickle of funding and you would have uh, protections and um, editors who would defend you if you took creative risks and, and stuff like this. And, and now it's um, a situation where the funding is terribly diminished. People are, are trying to go out onto platforms to, to regain some type of creative freedom, but then all of the incentives just kind of drag you down into this really divisive and clickbaity stuff. And um, in that process, you become nostalgic for what institutions used to, to do. So I think I kind of sat in a, a odd position on the fence on this issue of like, well, should we try to restore the institutions? Because I don't think you can do too much on the platforms. Yeah. Um, and then I think the the place that I finally got to through the last year of conversations with Matt and Holly and Carly and Julian and, and Dan, who are all the, the content creators for her channel, um, is that we probably can't fix the institutions as they are now. Like that, they may just be like, there was a, a cyclical process. They were founded in a, cer in a certain time. They fulfilled a certain function, but they may just be, you know, stuck how they are. And, and maybe, maybe let them wither. Maybe they can't be fixed. But yeah, the platforms well, are not a better alternative. So you need to make a new institution. We're in a new cycle. And um, that seems to be a much more appealing option to me. Well, when, when we were both more like, when we were more conspicuously participants in the art world in the early 2010s and the post in that post-internet moment, you know, things like PS MoMA PS1 and the new museum were very important to that. But it's also important to remember that like PS1 and the new museum, they're not that old. Like <laughs> they were founded. Right. They were founded in a different moment that had different pressures and different concerns, but but also they were founded because they didn't think that, you know, the Whitney and uh, the Matt yeah. Oma were were doing an adequate job of like responding to the creative practices of the 70s, you know, so yeah. I don't see this as that fundamentally distinct and the institutions will either like get their shit together or they won't. But in my mind, like the the core, the core premise that like needs to be pursued is just how do people allocate money for people to do things <laughs> I, yeah i just yeah. like the whole I, i've been thinking about this lately and you'll probably have thoughts on this too but you know i mean i have a sub stack this is gonna be on a sub stack you have a patreon i i think these these like new models of uh subscription economies are great obviously like part of what you guys are responding to though is that everyone can't have a sub everyone can't have like a sub stack <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? There needs right. to be like network effects and aggregation effects to, uh, you know, give everyone 
a piece of the pie. The like I I recently went through like a subscription purge, not not of like Substacks and Patreons and stuff, but just like being like, oh my god, I accidentally like subscribed to like seven add-ons to like Amazon Prime for like a variety of like movie channels during COVID and <laughs> forgot about you get, it. You do the sample once and then you pay for it for like six yeah, months. Totally. Yeah, totally. Yeah. But then you're like, like, I'm like holy shit. I've I can't watch this. hundred dollars a month <laughs> exactly. on yeah. Amazon Prime editions. This is awful. Um, but but for all these other things, you know, I think it's it's even more of a an issue. Like some, something that I've noticed like with OnlyFans or something like that, there's a lot of... uh like retention issues because yeah. and i think substack is probably the same way and that like people will people will pay for one month read all the back content that's paywalled and then cancel and similarly that's what people do with only fans i'm sh- i haven't heard this about substack yet but i would presume that there are probably some similar dynamics there and it is what it is you can't be too mad at people for for not wanting to you know pay hundreds of dollars a month in subscription fees for, to read everything that they want access to. But it's it's interesting to see like, you know, models for like, okay, how do we like one, like Patreon and Substack are probably they're good because they've created a new consumer behavior where people are willing to to simp <laughs> for a variety, for a variety of different cultural pro- projects. And and that's just a huge shift from even the 2000s when we were growing up, which was like the era of piracy. And now people are- That's their big innovation is that people just got so used to the internet, they became fine paying $5. Like that was, the tech is not like paywalling an RSS feed is not a complicated thing to do. No, it's just that people used to think it should all be free. And then the fundamental problem was just that that there was like the stopgap measure during the, the 2010s of the quote unquote exposure economy, which presumed that like, maybe large multinational corporate brands would step in and and fund interesting things. But of course they wouldn't because they're not set up to do that. They're not, they have no journalistic integrity. Um, like like you said, there's no, there's no protective layer when you're working for brands. And I don't think it's bad to work for brands, mm-hmm. but the idea that we're going to have like a functional cultural or media ecosystem, if it's all advertising seems fundamentally Ecos- yeah ecosystem is is maybe the right thing i mean um uh, people know me now from different types of work but in the beginning i i studied photography and i, I worked in that field for a, a very long time um and the way that professional photographers in, in the art context earn their living was that um showing their work in galleries was not profitable and like at best they broke even because the production cost is tremendously expensive there's a vastly diminished collector base for uh, photography it's addition the price point is lower all of these other factors um but what you would get uh infrequently maybe once a year is you get a big ad campaign because it was prestigious to work with the art photographers so there was this way that um doing the commercial work subsidized the artwork and doing the artwork attracted the commercial work and those things more or less kind of worked for a few people at a specific period of time who were um didn't really need to navigate the platforms in the same way i'm thinking of like the ryan mcginley's and the david benjamin yeah. sherry's and that like that generation you know people who are like before myspace before that type shit yeah um but obviously for us it was like totally different and i think people kind of assume that yeah there's going to be some like big brand money and somebody will fulfill this role of being a philanthropist and that just like that just never came um so i think that the thing that i'm curious and and what i keep prodding at for this question is like 
you know, we existed in a really specific moment where, uh, you know, literally for me, I was the last year that had a dark room and then they switched over to digital labs. Like we're straddling this generational divide. Um, and uh, instead of having philanthropy or institutional structures, we were offered the platforms. And I think that was an ideological decision. And if totally. you look at if you look at the wing of say like the, the web two moguls who came up in that period, like the, the Bezoses and the, uh, the Zuckerbergs and, and so on, um, none of them ever started their own museum and they didn't donate to the museums that were even in their own town, you know, it was very peculiar. But I think this was, they essentially, they, they didn't believe in the idea of like a curator or an editor, like uplifting one discrete no. art object over no. another, right? And so, that that basically liquidated culture and culture has been like basically the worst it's ever been for the whole period that those people have been in charge so you know this is a, a kind of weird reactionary like argument that we end up shoehorning in here is that the you know the the old like robber barons were better than the new robber barons but that's actually correct oddly enough oh for sure so like, like for example i I'm not, I'm not going to say who specifically this person was um because it's it's not really a critique of them even but they did end oh, well now up, I'm curious <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you, I mean they're, they're not they're not famous they, they were someone I worked with on like different consulting projects for a while and uh at one point they decided to go in-house at Facebook and work specifically on their like uh you know culture initiatives and I mean this was this was something kind of like after K-hole I I dabbled a little bit. I considered the prospects of being a mediary between brands and artists. And it became pretty clear almost immediately that like none of these things ever work out because the brands and the artists have just fundamentally different interests. And then beyond that, there's also just a, a dimension of like different, like small C cultural expectations. Like the people at the brands think of the artists basically as like fabricators. <laughs> and the artists do not think of themselves as fabricators. So you always end up in these, you know, stymied situations where both sides is both sides are fucking pissed because they think that they're getting scammed. The brand thinks that the artist is being too difficult to work with because they won't. Why won't they just do what we say? And the artist is like, this is not how a commission works. You you can't just tell me precisely what to make. I don't, I'm you know, the brands think <laughs> are illustrators. I mean, even K-Hole did a, a collab with a brand that I'm, again, not going to name because I'm not trying to dredge up old drama. But I, I remember they asked us if we would make a painting. Oh, and I was like, we don't, we don't paint. Oh, like, no. You, <laughs> you oh, know? no. <laughs> and, <laughs> uh, and that wasn't really what we agreed to when we signed this contract. So, like, all of a sudden, this, like, left field expectation that we would, like, draw an illustration to put on a product or, or like, paint on mm. something. I was like, that's just not, that's not even what we do. Um, and, and these kind of problems happen over and over again. But, but now it's a bit more built out with some brands like Instagram and, and TikTok and Facebook, because they do actually have cultural initiatives. But the cultural initiatives that they work in tend to be things that do not exist within the traditional institutional art world. This is why they love like street art, right. you know, because right. one street art is a bit more like, straightforward and illustrative like a brand can say will you make a giant uh mural of our our soda pop can and maybe the street a lot of street artists will say sure 
we'll we'll put your soda pop can in a mural. I'll draw it in my style because right, oh, totally, yeah. And it, it's like the idea. Well, they are kind of that, fabricators at that point. Yeah, well, if you're an illustrator and yeah. illustrators and street artists are kind of like working in a similar vein, and I'm not trying to like say that they're crappy or or that they shouldn't be respected, but it's much more like populist. The idea that I'm a I make drawings, I make paintings, I have a specific style. Yeah. This letters oh, up very well to we're like, in need of a healthy dose of populism. So sometimes that's very important. Yeah, but they do have they have like artists in residence at Facebook, but what they tend to be right. are not they're not artists that are showing at the new museum. They're artists that have what that make illustrations and they have like 500,000, a million followers on these platforms. No one in the art world has any idea who they are. Yeah, and I actually, this is, I, I had this interaction very recently. Uh, and I'm going to, again, we're doing a whole podcast where we kind of can't tell the audience what we're talking about. But I, I was talking to an artist who did the Facebook residency. Um, and basically every project they suggested was canned. And then the residency ended and they never got to make anything. Yeah, totally. But this was like somebody who shows in galleries and museums and whatever. This was you know oh, yeah. he kind of got in by accident well, too so but my, my yeah. feeling about the ideology side of it is that like of course a mark zuckerberg is not going to be interested in you know a traditional art format because what the social media platforms did was disintermediate stuff the whole thing was yes. anti-establishment anti-culture industry like fuck you anna wintour you can't you shouldn't tell americans what's in style People should just buy fast fashion off of their Instagram feed, you know? And so it's not surprising to me that these people would not want to recreate those institutions because quite explicitly they wanted to destroy the old institutions, you know? Yeah. There used to always be rumors. Do you remember this? There were rumors that there was going to be an art Basel in San Francisco. Like in the, in the mid 2010s, like in 2014, 15, 16, I remember hearing so many rumors that like this was going to be the year that that the curators mm. and the collectors like went to San Francisco and kind of made their pitch to the Silicon Valley elite that like they should they should really start getting on board you know that was the that was the impossible thing to solve for is that uh the new billionaires came into existence and then the art world could never figure out how to get money from them the, uh, the only yeah i remember is when google glass funded the triennial surround audience that ryan Dracarton and lauren cornell co-curated and k-hole was like a commissioned artist in that and uh the, the kind of great thing was that google glass was just in such a in such shambles that uh they had a total reorg <laughs> because mm. everyone hated the product. And the, the person who was newly in charge of Google Glass decided that this was not like the correct, uh, you know, co-branding possibility. So they just let the new museum keep the money. And then the fun thing, since we made the, you know, marketing for it was that we didn't have to put any like, you know, sponsored by kind of like oh, great. Little, little ticker tape of a, of other people's logos at the bottom because they were just like, okay, fine. We, we signed a contract. You guys keep it. <laughs> I think <laughs> we're pulling out though. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's important to stay like, you know, have a really big um, uh, scope for this stuff too, because we can find, you know, uh, small residencies here and there or, or an exhibition here and there, but in, in the scale of this stuff, it's, um, 
it probably would have been like a philanthropic, uh, uh, we're talking about, it would have been billions if these people had been funding arts for the, you know, the 10 years that these platforms were the, the dominant. There's something that happens there where people, uh, they conflate uh, markets and democracy, which is sometimes, you know, there is like an overlap between those two things. Um, but I, I think people have the feeling that like the institutions were uh, like, corrupt and nepotistic and mean and whatever and that if you just opened up like this kind of very you know arab spring occupy wall street type era where all these platforms come into existence that like we just let the people have the platforms and then democracy will take care of itself and you know (laughs) here we are 10 years later and like every cultural producer is like more impoverished than than ever before um the the culture is worse than it's ever been and uh you know that it was a, a the incentives were a race to the bottom of the free market rather than opening up opportunities for democracy. And I mean, if anything, they, they shredded the possibilities for yeah, democracy. I, I have, I have a, like I, I mentioned, and I'll, I'll just allude to this cause I haven't published yet, but I have, I have a report that I'm working on about crypto. And I similarly, like when I think about the narrative of where the impetus for crypto comes from, it comes back to the great recession. And when you think about the, that preceding cultural moment in the two thousands, um, a lot of it was huge frustration with the establishment, with the elites. You know, people tend to forget that the 2000s were bookended by two huge crashes. There was the dot-com crash in 2000, yeah. which wiped out tons of people's savings and 401ks. And then there was the even bigger crash from 2007 to 2008. And then in that middle period, you know, we had the invasion of fucking Iraq, where the New York Times had to publicly acknowledge that they were publishing, you know, disinformation for like the State Department to try to convince people to invade Iraq. People were pissed about it. And even just more generally, like this is the era of, you know, the devil wears Prada. That Like it, mm. it was like unpaid internships. It was a villainous elite, you know, in the 2000s. Yeah. And when you think about the crash that came and then you know, Barack Obama, Occupy Wall Street, like this kind of emergent digital populism. Yeah. A lot of people were ready to say, maybe these institutions are bad. Maybe they are lying to us. But but yeah, but I, I think there's like something different between like saying like, you know, the New York Times editorial board, the Bush administration, Anna Wintour, maybe some of these people are meanies, you know, <laughs> Harvey Weinstein. Yeah. Epstein, whatever, all these, all these different, uh, you know, elite people that have been exposed as being, you know, not even just mean in some instances, but like criminals, uh, you know, that's real, but literal criminal pedophile. Yeah, literal, literal, actually correct. Like Harvey, yes. Harvey Weinstein did a lot of like, you're going to get deplatformed. Criminal. What are you suggesting here? That's <laughs> what are these conspiracy theories? Yeah, but <laughs> there are like literal evil criminals who are sometimes elite and powerful, but at the same time, like having bad people in positions of power and having the the opposite of that isn't necessarily having no institutions or no gatekeeping or no, <laughs> right. Exactly. You know, like having yeah, no yeah. elites, like that's, that's all similarly kind of unrealistic. And, and it's even, of, it's even in the language that like gatekeeping is like a, a negative term. It's like the editors were uh, uh, revered for their wisdom and experience previously, you know, and now it's like gate, gatekeeping the language itself is poisoned it's my position actually that um the reason why people feel like culture has been stuck since this period 
is because we got rid of, uh, you know, these middlemen that used to exist. Like when you think back, yeah. say like, I would say you kind of have to start maybe in like around the fifties when you have like actual mass pop culture. And a lot of the most important figures in that era are people, you know, like, like uh, producers for pop musicians or fashion editors um, or, uh, or film producers or television producers, radio executives, yada, 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 A&R. A lot of these are all like these middlemen positions, but they served a, a specific role in that they both uh, cultivated talent and invested in talent, but also sold it through to investors, money men, uh, television networks, whatever, you know? So, so they had, they had like their hands on both sides of the scale. And I, I do actually think that part of the reason why the 20th century had so many highly distinct cultural eras that like kind of worked in a decadism format was partially like elite collusion. Like a lot of these people all knew each other. They, you know, they, they go to the same parties, uh, they go to the same events. They have, you know, similar educational, cultural backgrounds, live in the same cities. Uh, you know, so there could be a shift in taste amongst the quite literal tastemakers. And they could make it happen because they both had access to the talent that they could cultivate and the resources and money that they needed to, like, propagate it. But now I would, we I would throw in have- also that the, the ecosystem was a little bit more tilted as well. And that the the cultural producers say, if you're like the, the little guy who's trying to, to work your way up, um, just the cost of living. I mean, and we've talked about this oh, before, yeah. but like <laughs> the average amount of rent that you would spend on a New York City apartment in the 50s was like 10 percent of your income. And, you know, granted, it was not like a luxurious place to live or anything like that. But just, you know, um, uh, say like increasing concentrations of wealth among the elite, meaning that cultural producers have to already commodify and means test uh, the profitability of any creative risk that they're going to take has just led to a process of stagnation. So yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, obviously there's, there's kind of a tipping point where it it begins to trail off in the the, the, the funny dynamic and Thatcher revolution. But with something like, you know, something like uh, when people glamorize kind of like downtown seventies, eighties, East village, a lot of these people were living in unheated, unconverted industrial life. <laughs> right. These yes, were, that's true. There just was a dynamic um, where deindustrialization, one, started a lot earlier in the U.S. than a lot of people think. You know, th- this was a problem that emerged in the 50s for a variety of reasons. Part of it was just, you know, um, the the ramp down of like huge amounts of military spending <laughs> during World War II. <laughs> uh, but but people tend to forget that it wasn't Detroit that was the biggest center of manufacturing in the U.S. It used to be New York City. That was where we, like the Domino Sugar Factory made most of America's sugar. The Garment District made most of America's clothes. And that deindustrialization just meant that there were huge sections of the city that were previously for industrial use, which, I mean, there's not, I'm, I'm sure there's some industrial use still in New York City, but it is not predominantly an industrial city, like with a manufacturing base. So my grandfather worked at a sugar mill in Yonkers. Yeah. yeah. But but so what people tend to forget even and this is kind of where like I don't know that there's a solution to this even. You know like having like the wealthiest city in the world, the seat of like the global empire also have like I don't know, 30% of the real estate be abandoned. Was <laughs> like a unique historical situation. Yeah. Um obviously 
like sometimes when people like talk about this like oh you know how do we bring that back i'm like i just i don't think there's a way to do that we converted it all to housing it's all been made into condos etc i think well maybe it was on a, a previous episode well maybe it was your your episode before the last um so forgive me if I'm, I'm just repeating no, your own fine. ideas back to you, but I, maybe it was something that kind of stuck in my mind and I've been thinking about it ever since. Of like, I, was, I think I was making the argument to somebody that there was not like another neighborhood after this one. And I think maybe you said something like, oh, um, you can't well, go past Ridgewood or something like that. Yeah. Well, I, I, I used to make this joke before I moved to Los Angeles because I feel like at that point, there are people like Bushwick is a really big neighborhood comparatively. Geographically big. Yeah, yeah geographically. Yeah. Because it goes, you know, from from the edge of Williamsburg all the way out to Broadway Junction. Right, right. And there was a moment when, you know, parties started to be happening, like, closer and closer to Broadway Junction. And I used to make a joke to my friends that, like, they should rename that area Deepwick. And you knew you were there. If you were <laughs> JFK, then Manhattan. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. That's good. <laughs> but, no, it's true. There, There's not... At some point, you start to hit limitations of, like physical distance we're like are you i don't want to travel it's, it's more than just new york though it's more than just new york oh, because do, do you remember like there was a period where people they tried to kindle like an art scene in oakland like people mm-hmm. people left the surrounding area and we're going to start a little like cultural hub here and then people tried to do it in detroit and each of those experiments had a degree of success but knowing a lot of the people who navigated careers in those cities they would be flying to la or new york all the time it was just it was impossible to be uh self-sustaining without having to dip into the the major markets so i I just i found myself wondering like if there's not going to be another neighborhood in new york what if there's just not what if it's impossible to escape that thing like capital is is located in certain areas cultural production is constantly chasing these certain waves and bubbles and it's in this you know spaces that are about to be uh pushed out or, or you're, you're the first to move in or maybe if no one has successfully really escaped the New York art scene by trying to move to another city and there's not another neighborhood to go to what if just the era of neighborhoods is over and there's something like um, I don't know these like non-contiguous online communities communities that have like pop-up spaces and events or whatever but it wouldn't ever be like oh yeah we'll just go through you know like there's a period where basically you could walk up and down Orchard Street and you could see all of your friends on social media who had like careers and they were in group shows. And like that was a thriving New York art scene that was basically contained within like a quarter mile of street. Uh, but that was really right. geographically specific and dense. And I just I don't think we maybe we never get back to that. Well, so here here's the bright spot. One bright spot is please, that, yes, give me one. <laughs> one bright spot is that COVID has just dealt a bit of a hammer blow to a lot of office space That's and true. a lot of commercial real estate. I mean, I think it's kind of the office space I don't care about. Um, we know our, our good friend Mike Peppy loves an office, but I personally hate going to offices and I, I've been, you know, working quote unquote remote since before COVID because I work with clients wherever they are, so it doesn't matter. Um, but the other, but I mean, obviously it's sadder that, you know, maybe some like awesome bars or restaurants or stores all went under because everyone was just like too afraid to leave their houses and ordered everything on Amazon. Yeah. Um, so that might, those spaces might have some possibility of being retrofitted. Cause like, you know, I, Soph is usually my co-host. She's out, she's out right now because unfortunately her, her grandmother passed. But, uh, you know, I talked to her a lot about 
how young people just don't have spaces to have parties that interact with each other anymore. You know, she she tried to throw like a crypto rave during NFT NYC and it was in Williamsburg on on um Kent, I believe. Kent's the last one, right? Yeah, yeah. And you know, it got shut down I think in an hour and a half. And I was I went I went there cuz I I was running late and me and my friend arrived and it was already shut down and I was like, "Oh, that's too bad." But then I was like kind of looking around and thinking back to like 285 Kent days and I was like well of course it got shut down because it used to be like a gravel pit with like razor wire across the street between the warehouses and the water and now it's full of like luxury condo buildings and probably the person who used to go to parties at 285 Kent is now like a corporate lawyer and lives there and is annoyed that there's a bunch of like 20 year olds making a lot of noise in his fancy neighborhood when he's he's trying to get you know get some get some good sleep before he goes to his like hot yoga class at six in the morning or something uh and it makes me feel bad for young people because i i do think you're right there's there will be more like you know discontinuous uh online uh communities etc but people still need to um interact with each other irl it's this is fundamentally essential i mean oh god well this this Let's see if anyone listens to this long enough to hear this part. But, you know, the the two things recently that I saw kind of, well, again, people are going to get mad. But, uh, you know, as COVID <laughs> is ending, because I do believe that Omicron is like the last wave that we can use to justify uh, any further kind of like, you know, lockdowns, masking, blah, blah, blah. Like the two, the two different events that kind of had the same dynamic were one that Urbit Assembly I went to in Austin. And then I didn't go to Hereticon, <laughs> the kind of uh, the Founders Fund, Mark Andreessen event in in Miami. But I think they both seemed from the outside to have the same Twitter meets itself quality. So I think you can definitely meet people on the internet, but there need to be like these like special moments where you meet the person that you've been DMing with to solidify that friendship and relationships. Yes. Because I think without, there are just, this is like the metaverse problem and why I'm still so skeptical of it. There are just all these weird elements that exist that are like kind of like subconscious processes within our brains and how we relate to each other and how we form bonds with each other. And it's not, it doesn't exist at the level of just, you know, the abstraction of a video representation or a text chat, like you need the other stuff too. not always, but at some point, you know, you need those things to happen to really like solidify a moment or a scene or a movement. I don't think you can do it purely online. It has to, it has to de-virtualize uh, at some point. Yeah. That's a, a I think a, a Jack Ricker is a participant in do not research and new models came up with that term. Um, yeah, um, uh, please extend my condolences to uh, So for her grandmother. Um, that's uh, 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 very sad to hear. I, I think for people of that generation, uh, broadly speaking, this this problem of hmm. not being able to go to uh, an event or have a neighborhood or, or whatever is, um, yes, something needs to be resolved for this. And it's just a question of like, what kind of material resources are gonna be available? And there, it looks like there may not be much. So maybe it takes the form of these, you know, conferences or events or, or whatever, but um, yeah. I, yeah. I mean, the 
the other element that I that I you know kind of told her about because the the first pod, podcast we had we were talking about you know indie sleaze return like this nostalgia for the two thousands, um and something that I've noticed because also I you know I have I have younger siblings that are are Zoomers is just there one on the one hand there's the resources element of it like kids like young kids not being able to afford cars because you can't buy a clunker anymore and also because you know kids don't work as much anymore because much more focus on like you know really acing those SATs to get into a hyper competitive college because the and jobs like, pay so and bad. like the, the yeah. notion that like I don't know when I grew up every, all my friends had part-time jobs this was like you're supposed yeah. to do really well in school and you know like I worked at the library it was not yeah, that, that so, was normal for us yeah it was not so it wasn't terrible it was like I went and put books away for like three or four hours like a couple days a week it was great I realized I worked at this grocery store for like seven dollars and 25 cents an hour and it's like I I look back at it now and I realize it was because my parents thought that it would teach me a sense of discipline or whatever but like totally. obviously studying for the SAT is is like it, the job market is so fucking competitive like your only <laughs> chance is to get like the best possible pedigree and education that you can it's like how much did I totally earn working through high school as a part like what did I get like I don't know a, a few hundred dollars working part-time for, I mean, for a year like it was completely insignificant and meaningless like you but stand to earn more if you just uh, uh, get really good grades and go to a, a honestly just a really fancy prestigious school that's, that doesn't teach you shit but that's kind of true. yeah yeah it doesn't make sense about, just numerically it was also about independence it was also yes like teenager sure, yes teenagers were allowed to be much more independent 15 years ago than they are today like the other the other thing and i've you know it's like sometimes when i talk to younger people i'm like yeah i remember being 16 and you know me and my friends would get in their shitty car and we would like drive to ithaca on like a wednesday night and go see like arcade fire or something and drive home and this was totally normal and it just it kind of struck me how i was like i feel like people would really cast all these aspersions if there were actually like spaces for teens to socialize unsupervised by an adult in 2022 like society got sicker too you know it's more dangerous for kids now too is it I don't yeah, there's fucking like terrorists <laughs> and like pedophiles on the internet. You know what I mean? I mean, that's but maybe that's, maybe not. It's maybe not more dangerous I, walking down well, Main Street. I mean, but it's I, definitely I guess, more dangerous on the internet than it was before. I'm just I'm asking the question more about like, I, is it actually more dangerous for kids to like drive around and you know it's even because when you go further back even you know, you start to see like, I don't know, like these weird, like Larry Clark photos or something of like, it's like, oh, here's like a roller rink in Omaha. And there's like 14 year old kids playing smoking with cigarettes and like <laughs> yeah. getting drunk and stuff. That's and it's true. just yeah. like, it seems it's wild because if that happened today, it would be like trending on Twitter, like national emergency level. And I mean, I'm sure it's safer for kids now, but I do wonder like, they seem to like not be given the opportunities to you know have kind of like the freedom of youth and to like self-organize and engage with each other that people older than them had and i'm not entirely convinced that the trade-off of safety for freedom is all good you know <laughs> yeah yeah no no that makes a lot of sense yeah yeah that is that's that's important and there's something like a um this uh maybe like a pmc anxiety of like you're you're min maxing your kid since birth you're like basically hedging 
risk for your kid like you're taking like i have one kid they cost but like (laughs) yeah yeah exactly and all of the the hormones that cost hundreds of thousands of dollars like i'm not you're running a risk profile on your child like i'm not letting them smoke cigarettes with their friends behind the roller rink (laughs) Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, I mean, there's, there's a certain, there's a certain like uh, social illness that's just propagated recently that makes people like, uh, uh, you know, really worried about their kids. Um, I don't know. Uh, uh, no one gets an opportunity to burn their hand on a stove anymore, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, that this is also why you know to, to bring it back a bit to like crypto and your project. Some of why it's kind of interesting is that crypto is one of the only spaces where you see young people have agency i think right now you know like it's somewhere where like you might meet some random 19 year old <laughs> who made <laughs> billions of dollars Truly insane, random yeah. nfts and suddenly they have you know the capacity to uh to do something with that that is like cultural and social and productive so that's part of why even though i mean yeah, for our, for our listeners, yeah. me and Josh are in a group chat where we've been arguing about whether crypto is evil or not all day. <laughs> <laughs> I swear to God, I'm going to strangle Mike the next time I see him. But yeah, no, it's it's good. It's good productive banter. I mean, um, look, I, I talked to Angela Nagel about this. Uh, I think we posted the podcast uh, last week or the week before. And, um, you know, there is a, a certain period of American life where we just had better elites, you know, and now we have like very corrupt and very incompetent elites. And um, one shouldn't be naive about this, that we want a society that is full of of elites, but um, there are certainly better and worse degrees of this. Uh, Yeah. And so it it seems like there is really a stranglehold on uh, culture uh, at the moment that uh, has been, uh, it's basically been um, uh, owned in a quite literal sense by these, these platforms. And so if, you know, they built a wall around the commons uh, in the, the early periods of the 2010s, um, it's kind of impossible to just go back to the commons, but at least there's an opportunity now to like carve out a smaller, a, a slightly larger piece of the pie to partition the commons in, in a little bit more of a fair fashion. Yeah, I mean, and that is incremental progress towards uh, these goals. And I think the other thing is like, as the 2010s progressed, we saw that, those elites and here I'm, I'm pretty explicitly talking about like the founders of google the founders of facebook the founders of amazon that they they participate in bad faith arguments for like their position you know i don't know if you saw that recently it was revealed that google adsense was stealing money from all the digital publications they changed oh, their algorithm because not surprised well because you have to remember and this is something that i've thought about with clients as well you know there's no third party auditing organization the, the way that there is with, say, like when you're looking at data from publicly traded companies, there are third party auditors who are like saying, this is true. This is correct. This is not false. Um, there are no third party auditors saying like if uh, the number of impressions that Facebook claims you have gotten and they are charging you for existed or not. This was the whole pivot to video thing the first time. Like they said that everyone wanted video. All of these organizations fired tons of people, hired videography teams. And then it was kind of revealed that their metric for watching a video was that it auto-played for like a second. <laughs> yep. And no one was like, it was, yep. there was actually no consumer desire. And I, I forget what like the, the strategic 
thinking at Facebook was for this. I mean, I think they were probably thinking that video was better because it's hosted entirely in their feed, whereas links take you off the site. So they would prefer, you know, publications to do video content than written content. Um, but it was just not true. And then the thing with Google was, uh, you know, if you had, I don't know, uh, the Atlantic or something, and, uh, you know, part of part of their income is going to be banner ads and whatever, all the ugly shit that interrupts the reading experience. And, you know, the way they do it is the AdSense is the biggest, uh, it's like by far the biggest kind of monopoly on placement of banner ads, et cetera. And it's a, it's an auction, but Google has a black box around the auction. So they're the only ones that see the offers. And basically what they were doing was, you know, someone would make a, a bid to put something onto the Atlantic for like, I don't know, a hundred dollars. I'm making up a figure. I don't know the exact pricing of this. And someone else would put a bid to put something on for $300. And so Google would go to the Atlantic and say, look, you got a bid for a hundred dollars. And then they would take the $300 bid and keep the difference. <laughs> it's, just, it's brilliant. It's, it's brilliant. Like yeah. Straight up theft. So the whole, the whole idea of like, these are neutral platforms. Um, I feel like has has really fallen apart. This is why I'm also bearish on Facebook's, you know, new meta platform. Like who, who would want to give Mark Zuckerberg, Mark Zuckerberg more power? I, yeah. Yeah, I this is, Holly said something there. about this in the, uh, in the round table podcast um, that we'll, we'll make public in the, in the near future. Um, but it was, it was something to the effect of, you know, these platforms are already fully financialized. Uh, Totally. We just don't see any part of it, you know, so uh, people get cooties when you start to talk about, you know, what the creator split is and and who's making what or and it provokes like uncomfortable conversations. But the unfortunate reality is that um, when you obfuscate that stuff, it only works to the benefit of people who are working with like massively with the odds massively stacked in their favor. Uh, and if you're like a creative producer who needs to, you know, um, uh, pay yourself, uh, put, put a roof over your head, put food on the table. And then also, you know, in my case, pay contributors, blog contributors, uh, uh, or co-editors who run the blog and uh, people do screenings and all of these, you know, uh, the guest fees for people who come on the podcast and whatever. Um, like, yeah, I actually really do care about the split. And I'm, I'm a little bit tired of like producing value for uh, the platforms for them to sell ads uh, off of the views of my, my content and whatever. So yeah, yeah, it's, um, it's I, mean, I, I guess monopoly really doesn't benefit anyone is the point that that should be obvious, but for whatever yeah. reason, the discourse is partitioned in such a silly way that people find themselves defending monopolies without the possibility for any democratic input whatsoever. Like, okay, just enjoy being shadow banned. <laughs> enjoy enjoy getting deplatformed uh i've got an institution to run and we're going to be here a year from now uh and that's that's the priority one um yeah yeah i I, th I think it's i think it's it's one of these things where it's i mean i would like it if we came to a place where uh culture could not be purely about money anymore not not that i'm anti-commercial in any way shape or form i i just think like when you think when you look discursively at how uh, kind of social media platforms have shifted cultural discourse. It's kind of that everything is purely about money or pure, like, right. like it's like, these are marketing platforms first and foremost, Facebook and Instagram, especially. So there's kind of like this funny way in which people talk about these things as if they're like, you know, these like earnest, like culture spaces. And I'm like, no, it's all marketing. 
it's branded marketing and then it's also individuals marketing themselves and I, I think that that's just like slow slowly crept up to take more and more headspace where people think more about the marketing of the product than the product and that's fine if you're selling you know a new non-alcoholic cali sober seltzer or something but like i would prefer, <laughs> sure, I would prefer sure, that's fine, yeah. people are writing or you know it's not going to support the next great novel yeah. there should be some aesthetic discourse that exists for people because people need people have a spiritual need for cultural objects that are not purely about like if they are a vector either for capital or for some like proxy for it like number of followers number of likes you know we, yeah. we perceive these things all as proxies of popularity and thus market share even though that's not entirely true so so that's kind of like my hope is that like i mean crypto is clearly purely about money in some ways but then in other ways it seems to like at least for now produce enough heat that like people can then think about other stuff afterwards you know yeah i think that's yeah you said it perfectly there yeah it's like we got to have the uncomfortable conversation about money because um you know we're, we're actually running these things now we can't really afford to be utopian um and then it's it's really about when you have a little bit of runway like you can you can have the decommodified time and not have to worry about like the thing i made this week has to sell and accumulate x amount of value so that i can make another thing the week after if you can broaden out that timeline and make it two weeks make it a month or make it a season it, you produce infinitely better content that you can just start to think about more complex things and and make more meaningful and complex art and yeah, yeah, that's really important. So it's maybe if we we analogize it to to tech because we can never really um, escape this comparison that you know we need a uh, cultural innovation ecosystem that um, allows for uh, pools of of decommodified space where people can just sit and think and have some time to work on something. And uh, the insights that you generate there are really um, a lot of them. You know, maybe they never go anywhere, but sometimes you get something that is just so profound and unique yeah. that. It can't exist anywhere else. And that's like the most special thing in the world. So that's I mean, what we're trying to facilitate. Yeah. And because in my mind, it's it is at the end of the day, like crypto is weird. Let's see where it goes. But it does seem in some ways to be more pragmatic than what Web 2 offered. Web 2 to me seems like the actual diluted utopianism. Like I think even yeah, yeah. I saw something yesterday, someone quoted Natasha Stagg where she she said something I'm going to roughly paraphrase here. Uh, that was along the lines of like, everyone's obsessed with uh, working for free to prove that they can. <laughs> and, That's great. And I think similarly, like this whole, this whole idea that like everyone can just like produce content. It's going to be free. It's going to be organic. It just relies on this notion that like most people just, they have nothing to do. They have no, they have no financial obligations. It's just, it's just batshit insane. Those are aristocratic oh, politics. Those are like, okay, you're just, you're already leisure class. Like you don't need to work. Like you're living in decommodified time. You can consider your artistic pursuits without the pressures of the market already. That's what working for free yeah, is. And it just, it yeah. just, and this, this to me, like it, it references like when people would make jokes about like the kind of 2010s, um, like gig economy shift where like every, every new tech products was seemed like optimized for like some rich bro that worked in tech where he's like, which is like, i.e., people who have very little time but a lot of money. So it's like this to me is like why something like Movie Pass fails. 
Because MoviePass operates under the assumption that the reason why people aren't seeing so many movies is because everyone's so fucking busy. When it's like, no, 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 no. The reason why people are seeing less movies is that like, if you, if you're a single mom with two kids, uh, you know, working to support them, $60 to take them to a movie is quite a large chunk of cash for you. And so then they create it and then everyone just is seeing movies all the time. And they're like, I, why aren't these people in Zoom meetings? <laughs> <laughs> Get back to work. Whole, and then the whole thing falls apart. And I think similarly, like a lot of these tech platforms, it's like, you know, the people funding it are like, well, yeah, I, I love writing. It's like a passion project. And it's like, yeah, well, you don't care about getting remunerated for your time and effort because you have tons of money already so this whole idea of like the pure passion project of something aesthetic or intellectual is appealing to you but but for the vast majority of people they don't have you know that don't have like a, a venture capital fund or something yeah, <laughs> like yeah. it, the the idea that you could get paid for your time and effort is appealing to them because it's it's also you know I just feel like social media has created like mass amateurization of culture. Yeah. Yeah. There's I'm, maybe I'll, I'll throw in one more thing here that um, uh, I, I have to run to another uh, call in, in a I minute am. here, but uh, just to echo one of the things that you said, um, one of the ways that uh, uh, our current culture is perpetuating itself is that um, there has literally been no countervailing force to pose any kind of a threat to the way that cultural production is organized. Like there's no, philanthropy, there's no opportunity to make good stuff and put it on the platform. So basically, even if you had the right criticisms, it was meaningless because there was no way to, to implement those things or change the yeah. current situation. Um, and so what developed out of that was all of these belief systems that think of themselves as being critical of the space, but they're actually totally copacetic and and like they, they are facilitating it. Um, and, and I think the evidence of this is like meme accounts that talk shit all day, uh, and then like exist on the platform. Like you, you want to be in this world, you're already living in your utopia and you just choose to be cranky about it all the time. Like that is the thing that's more appealing to you. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's a, a <laughs> incredible moment of irony where like you end up having to explain these things to people who like picked up the arguments you taught them and somehow think that they're, um, I don't know, gonna, gonna use your own rhetoric uh, uh, back on the source. Um, yeah, yeah. So it's been, it's been a funny moment, but I think, um, let me, let me just add this and then I'll, then I'll, I'll shut myself up. But I think um, there's many unsustainable trend lines for this thing. And they, they all indicate some type of really catastrophic uh, uh, collapse. And so, you know, if this happens for the, the culture industry first, like that's, that's great. Maybe there's a way to, to salvage this and build something new, but um, yeah, it's, it's, it's just been really obvious that the current way of doing things has been to the, the detriment of like culture, obviously the discourse clearly and, and politics as, you as know, well. So. Totally. I mean, at the, at the end of the day, I'm not, I'm not totally like doom pilled on culture because you know, we can organize things differently because within living memory, we did. So whether it's regulatory or comes from more of an innovation angle, which is kind of the crypto position, you know, I I think the current situation is untenable, but the the outcome of it won't be bad. Like at the end of the day, the people who are kind of like flabbergasted by things like Substack and say, what about editors? Um, you know, I there are people already doing projects on Substack where they're integrating editors back into the workflow. That's not necessarily what these things are entirely <laughs> about. They're more about 
trying to create. Yeah, these these productive spaces that don't work on poverty wages anymore. Yeah, amen. <laughs> <laughs> amen. Yeah, right. Sean, this has been yeah. great to catch up. Um, yeah, I'd love to have you on the pod yeah. soon. We have to um, we have to do another one. Totally, let's do it. All right, bye, Josh. Well, bye, Sean. <laughs>